Psalm 46, um, you know, I don't often give titles for the Psalms. They have titles. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, the song. If I were to put a title on this, I would call it the supremacy of God, our, our refuge and strength. And those two things are, are very front and center in this psalm. God's supremacy, but he's our God. For This is a psalm of, of great encouragement to God's people. We're in Psalm 46 tonight. That we're getting familiar with the choir master, the sons of Korah. This was to be a psalm conducted by the, the worship leader of Israel for worship among the congregation of Israel. And it was written by the sons of Korah, according to the Alameth. Now, Alameth, uh, we see that word only one other time in Scripture, in First Chronicles 15.20, uh, where we read Zechariah, Aziel, uh, Shemariah, Jeziel, Uni, Eliab, Maaseah, and Benaiah were to play harps, according to Alamoth. Now, this word refers to either maidens, young women, virgins. It can be translated variously. Uh, most scholars believe that this is, in fact, uh, dealing with the pitch that this psalm was sung in, a high pitch. And that's very interesting because uh, this pitch would agree, in a sense, with the glory of the psalm. This psalm is a, re a joyful psalm. It's a psalm, sometimes I, I make comments like, we should sing this out loud, you know, we should sing this psalm loud or this song loud, this hymn loud, because it's, it has that sort of emphasis that it should be a highly sung uh, pitch uh, because it's a high praise. Uh, Spurgeon says, We are not always in a slovenly manner to fall into one key, but with intelligence or to modulate our praises and make them fit in, fittingly expressive of the occasion and the joy it creates in our souls. And that's so important, whether it's, whether it's the high keys or whether it's the low keys, whether it's the major or the minor chords. I, my pastor, I hate to say this because it, maybe it's derogatory, but he always used to say, we Christians, we don't sing in the minor key. It's, it's not true. <laughs> my mom was a musician. Is that true? No, there's all kinds of minor keys we sing. <laughs> but but, he's, but he's, his point was that we shouldn't sing with our heads drooped down and in despair, but there are times when we are suffering and when there are suffering happen that it's appropriate to sing that way. Uh, and we see the Psalms that are written to that degree. We've looked at them recently. The laments that we've just considered recently were certainly not sung with the peppy. <laughs> I, I make a, another jab at a, another church uh, tradition is the church tradition partly that I grew up in. They, they would they would have these bar rooms type jazz piano, like dun 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 dun, dun you know, like this. And then the song would be about hell. And you, <laughs> and I just, you know, and you're just kind of sitting there going, I don't know if this is appropriate, you know. So this is an occasion where the high pitch is appropriate because the occasion of the psalm is, a, is an occasion to see the greatness of God for the sake of his people. Uh, we don't know the exact history behind why this psalm was written, but if you're familiar with uh, Assyria, when it already it had, it had sacked Samaria, it had defeated the northern uh, kingdoms, and it had come down to Judah now, and Sennacherib, the great 
king of Assyria at that time uh, had come down, and, and it was certainly the case that uh, Hezekiah was fearing the worst in the face of this great army. And in, if God had not intervened, it would have been the end for Jerusalem. That's certain. But we read in 2 Chronicles 32, 20, and 22, and it probably, it fits certainly the content of the psalm. Perhaps it's the histor- history behind it. Then Hezekiah the king and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, prayed because of this, because of Sennacherib's threat, and cried to heaven. Now, Sennacherib was blaspheming God. None of the other gods saved the other nations that we already destroyed. Why should you? Why should you uh, trust in your God to deliver you? And the Lord sent an angel. Here's the answer. Yahweh sent an angel who cut off all the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned with shame of face to his own land. And when he came into the house of his God, some of his own sons struck him down there with the sword. Certainly they were superstitious, thinking, oh, you must have offended the gods. This is why this happened. And so they kill their own fathers. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all of his enemies, and he provided for them on every side. And so this tells us the theme of this song, this psalm, and indeed the next two psalms, which should be read almost in a unified group. They're not all one song, but they all contain the, the, the same theme, and that is the praise of the transcendent God who rules over his creation and subdues his enemies while at the same time establishing his people represented by his holy hill, Zion. The theme of this psalm agrees with the occasion above, namely that God is the refuge and strength of his people. Everything may fail in this world and will fail in this world. You know, that is one of the things that we are certain of, isn't it? Is that this life is not going to continue on forever. I was just talking to my mom on the phone, and like, you grow, you grow to a certain age, and all it seems you talk about is health problems, <laughs> and this person's, and this person died, and that, you know, and and that's that's the way of mankind until the return of Christ. But the theme of this is that God overcomes nature; He overcomes everything for the sake of His people. Nothing can stand against Him. The three confessions of this psalm are found in verses 1, 7, and 11. And they, they, there are three parts of this psalm, but those three confessions really split up two parts of the psalm. So I'm, instead of looking at it in three parts, I'm going to look at the confessions first. The first is the imminent power of God's deliverance. Verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Now we need to think of refuge and strength as defense and offense, respectively. That's what this means. God is both our defense and our offense. Strength is what he gives to his people. A refuge is how he protects the bulwark. He is the defense of of his people, and he is the means of our strength. God's protection of his people is impregnable. Who Who can defeat God when God stands in in defense of his people, who can stand? And this is all the way up to the throne room of heaven. You know, Satan with his accusations coming against God's people, Christ is that defense that cannot be broken in that regard. 
God is the strength of our hope in overcoming our enemies. And these things are true of God because he is very present help in trouble. You know, one of the important aspects of worship, and I meant to speak on it this morning, is, is that when we come, say for instance, to the table of the Lord, the Lord's Supper, we come to the presence of God. This is why we can't lose altogether the biblical emphasis that Christ is present with us when we partake of the supper. Now, there's all sorts of arguments as to what degree do we speak about that. Transubstantiation, consubstantiation. Is he above? Is he around? Is he in the elements? You know, and to what degree do we, is he, is he present by faith, our union with Christ by faith in the presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit? But the point is that we need to not lose is that we are we experience uh, uh, intimacy with God at this supper that we are near to him. He's drawn near to us by the gift of his son. And that supper represents his nearness to us. And indeed, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. But for God to be a help for us, he must be present. He must be near us is the, the point of the psalm. And he is. That's what he's saying. He does not just give us what we need. He does not just set up boundaries. He doesn't just set up, say, if we're thinking in old terms, a castle. No, he is our defense. He is in himself these things for us. He is our strength. He is providentially involved, not only in his creation, but for the sake of the salvation of his people. And don't we need to know that? We need to know that, especially in light of the Psalms of Lament that we just looked at, because there are times where our faith demands that we lament in faith. And we, we need to remember that even there, it is God who is our defense. It's him who is our strength. This is exactly what the psalmist does when they lament. They look to God for help. They look to him for grace, as the psalmist says. Verse 7, the Lord of hosts. Now that reference, the Lord of hosts, regards a military idea. That's a military reference. God is the the Lord, he's the Lord of, of the hosts of the armies of heaven. Is probably what that should refer to in our mind. He leads the hosts of heaven, and he is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, and he repeats that in verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah marks the, the end of both of those uh, 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 ascribings of praise to God. And we should remember that in the New Testament, being New Testament saints, we need this just as much now, don't we? We're wrestling. We're in military conflict. We're in a war right now. Paul says a good soldier doesn't get bound up in the affairs of this world. Sin of this world binds us. It makes us useless for warfare. Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Uh, Ephesians 6 10 be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might it's the same idea put on the whole armor of God and let me say this all of the armor of God when we break it down has to do with our relationship to God how we relate to him how he is near us faith salvation truth these things that endure in us the willingness to stand firm the spiritual armor uh, are, are God's means of him being our refuge and strength, our very help in time of trouble. But here's what we need to understand as believers in this age is that we are the church militant. It doesn't end after church tonight. 
We don't go home, put our heads on our pillows and say, okay, we're done fighting the Christian fight. We're going to be tempted when we go home. We're going, to, we're going to be tempted to disengage in this week from our faith. We're going to be tempted, we're going to be both tempted and encouraged to do well. Let me say that again. We're going to be encouraged to do well and tempted to do evil this week. <laughs> Didn't make any sense, did it? We're going to be engaged, and we have to be. We have to be standing firm when, man, I, I just saw an interview with the, with the man, and I won't say his name because I, I don't want, I do think it's right to call out false teachers. I don't know if he's there yet, but just listening today to him, I don't, I don't think he's going to be in the faith very long. He just doesn't seem to have his feet underneath him anymore. I think he's going to wind up in Eastern Orthodoxy or Roman Catholicism. He's sort of taken this view of Scripture that it's, it's insufficient and he needs more feeling. He needs more emotions. He, he needs to, to have more of an experiential faith every day of, our, of his life. And I just, I just want to look at the Psalms and I say, the Psalms are like this. <laughs> Sometimes they're down here because of the trials God's put. Sometimes they're crying out, where are you? Are you asleep? We just saw that two psalms ago, right? Does that mean God has gone anywhere? No, it means that we depend on God to be our refuge and strength. It needs, we need to gird ourselves. Our, those, those loins need to be gird up with the truth again. We need to be established in the truth, but all of those are in relationship to God and, and his closeness to us and our need of him. He is present with his people. The confession of this psalm was the basis of Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress. We're going to sing that, God willing, after. And that psalm is, this psalm and that hymn are about God being our strength. And that, that line, he's a bulwark that never faileth. A helper, he amidst the flood. And we'll see how that relates to this psalm soon. God's protection and strength are measured in this psalm, in a sense, by several factors. Secondly, the second main point, God most high over creation. Before we go there, go to verse 4. Here is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the most high. Now this is a break in the threat. Verse 4 is really a break in the threat that we'll get to in a moment. But it's also a, <laughs> it's also a bit of a consternation to uh, some Bible scholars because we see this name for God mentioned here, the Most High. That's, the Hebrew is El Elyon. In 2 Samuel 5, 6, and 7, we see that David goes up to Jerusalem to defeat the Jebusites because when they came into the land... They didn't defeat all the Canaanites, the Jebusites. They didn't defeat all the Philistines, as we know. And the Jebusites remained at Jerusalem. And so David, the reason why it's called the city of David, is because David goes to Jerusalem. He goes up to Jerusalem with his army, and he destroys the Jebusites, and he takes the city of Jerusalem. And that is the first time that Israel controls all of Jerusalem. Yes, Benjamin was in the land there, but not until David defeats the Jebusites do they dwell in Jerusalem. And that becomes the city of Zion, 
the David city. So, so what scholars are concerned about is that the Jebusites worshipped a deity called, in their pantheon called El Elyon, Most High. And so what they say, some scholars say, is that what this psalm seems to do is it seems to take that designations that the Jebusites put on El, Elo, Elohim, God, as the Most High, and, and Israel just sort of took that for themselves and made it their own designation of Yahweh, which is a, in Israel, you weren't to take what the pagans were doing and apply that to your own worship of God. That was prohibited. And so they struggle. Well, what's going on? But I think the problem is that maybe we don't believe Genesis. Because if you go back to Genesis chapter 14, you know the story. Psalm 72, or 76 verse 2 also deals with the same theme. We see a person there. His name is Melchizedek. Melchizedek, king of Salem. That's Jerusalem. Jerusalem is called Salem as well in Psalm 76. He's the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. He was a priest of El Elyon. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High. Now, what's very interesting about this text, if you remember it, well, Abraham has delivered Lot from or, or Sodom, the, the kings. He's delivered them because he's caring for Lot, remember, his nephew. And so these kings try to give Abraham, they try to bless Abraham, the kings of Sodom. And Abraham tells them, no way. I am not going to take anything from your hands. But he takes from Melchizedek. He takes from Melchizedek, I believe, because Melchizedek is a priest. As we know in Hebrews it also references Melchizedek as a priest of the Most High God. And what I believe is happening here is I believe that Melchizedek is a priest of Yahweh, the, the one true and living God. At some point in the history between Abraham and when Israel comes into the land, the Jebusites take over Jerusalem to some degree. They take El Elyon, God the Most High, and they add him to their pantheon, which was very common for pagan people to do. They just add whatever deities they need to get ahead. Of course we're going to add him. He's a good God. We'll take him, you know. And so, and so their syncretic religion added El Elyon, whereas truly and rightly, this was a designation of the, the one true and living God, Yahweh. Look at what he says about him. And blessed be him, uh, God most high, a possessor, possessor of heaven and earth. This is a, not a God of the rain or God of thunder or God of fertilite, you know, fertility or whatever. That's how they usually segmented their gods. And they always had sort of a greater God, but then they had an extension of the high gods and all those things. But, but here is truths that relate to the one true God of Israel. And I, when we read El Elyon there in verse 4 of Psalm 46, we are, we are reading uh, no syncretistic idea of God, but a biblical view of God. God, the God of Israel, the God of Jacob, is God most high. 
I think it's a beautiful designation. It's a right designation of how we need to view God, this God. First, our psalm expresses in relationship to creation, God's transcendence over the earth. Verse 2, therefore we will not fear though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. We know something about how powerful waves are when they crash against the cliffs on the North Shore. Kings is breaking out there in the middle of the bay or over by lefts or whatever you call that past Waikoko's when it's really big and it's just slamming the coast, and all of the North Shore is in a, a miss because the waves are so big. But it's really bigger than that. It's very interesting because if you look here, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, first he says, therefore we will not fear though the earth gives way. Whose kids are those? <laughs> My, mine. <laughs> True. <laughs> I'm thinking of that text. They need to learn how to act in the house of God. <laughs> and I need to teach them. Uh, Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Though the, listen to this. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Now, before it gets to the waves crashing against the mountains and the foam and the mist that's caused and the turbulence and the turmoil of those great, powerful waves, he describes something that very may well indicate that creation is being undone. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, how does, how does the land appear? It appears out of the water. The, the land comes out of the water in creation when God makes all things. Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And now this psalmist is saying, though, it's almost like though creation is being reversed. I, I really think if we understood the scriptures, if we were closer to the scriptures, we wouldn't have a society stricken by a depression that cannot be overcome. Now, Christians have been depressed in severe depression to, that doesn't break easily. It doesn't give way easily, but the word of God has been able to sustain those Christians. That's, that's, if you listen to people that go through severe depression, that's how they speak. It's like the world is absolutely inside out, upside down. What is made is being unmade. And I think the psalmist is saying here, God is our refuge and strength. There. At those times, we will not fear Really? Man, when I, when I was in that house <laughs> a couple years, four years ago now, it's four years, unbelievable. And, the, and I saw that flood waters running, and I'm walking out with Bonnie, and we're chest high with water, and she's holding baby Luther, and she stumbled, and I've got her hand. I mean, I, I talked to Dan Castalis that morning, 
because he was going to come preach. And I said, I don't know if you can come preach because we just had this crazy flood. And he said, I think you're in shock. You're not making any sense. He's like, I can see what's going on. Go be with your family. You know, I don't know what I said to him, but I know that I was in fear. But he says, we will not fear. And what I think that means is not that we will never fear. It means we have a right not to fear. We have all the capacity to be in those sorts of situations and not fear. Why? There is a river whose streams, and the, and the placidness of the scene is what we should see here, the, the serenity, the grace here. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, verse 5, she shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The poetry moves from God being our refuge and strength to God being among his people. The contrast is that of, of, uh, of peace because of placement. The storm is outside the city in verse 4. Or verses 2 and 3. The storm is outside, verse 4. But we're in the city with God. It's His city. It's a holy habitation. He's there with us. There's a calm and gracious stream in the center of it that produces all that we need, even while the storm is raging. To make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. And this is once again the expression of the promise in the Old Testament, especially revealed for us in the New Testament, isn't it? God is not in love with the plot of land, is not how we should view this. He is in love with the people, allegorically here, represented by land. Yet truly described as children of Jerusalem, children of promise. For us in the New Testament, Galatians 4.16 says, but Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. That's relating to us as children of promise. But in Hebrews, it talks about in chapter 3, we won't go there, but it talks about us being that city that is built. But of Abraham, it is said that his faith in God caused him to look forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God, Hebrews 11.10. And those of us who are in the new covenant by grace have attained entrance into that city called Zion, heaven... Uh, Hebrews 12, 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in feastal gathering. God's presence is not the only reason we don't fear. God's love for us, his covenant people, is where we draw our, feet, our peace. It's not just that he's present with us, but that he loves us. I really believe hell the horror of hell is that God will be pouring his wrath out upon the wicked, but there is no benevolence in him towards them. There's no mercy anymore. I think there may be a consciousness that they are reaping the reward of their opposition against God. But the opposite is true of us. And so in other words, when we say hell is separation from God, the reason I say that is because it's not merely separation from him in space. It's separation from him in any sort of benevolence or love 
or mercy. It's just fire. It's just, he's a consuming fire. And the horror of that should not, it should cause us to write hymns of woe with regards to those things. Appropriately, because that is a woeful situation. But we, are, we draw our, our peace, contrast, in contrast to that, because God is with us. But notice, it's both inside the city, God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved, God will help her. We're the city here, described. I think this is exactly what we saw, and we won't go there because I've already argued that. I do think that in Revelation 21, the city, the heavenly Jerusalem that comes down out of the sky, this is the bride. We're the bride of Christ. We're called a city in Hebrews 3. I think that we are that city, that purified city, and God will dwell among us, is the promise of eternity. He is our helper. God will help her when the morning dawns. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Third, God most high over the nations. God is over creation, but God is over the nations. The nations rage, verse 4. I'm sorry. That's not verse 4. Verse 6. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. That is the noise of their army. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. The armies of men can produce terrible destruction on earth. Amongst each other, you, you know, what's going on in Russia, Ukraine right now? It, it, it destabilizes the whole world, doesn't it? That we have somebody who has nuclear weapons just going after other countries is a very destabilizing element in the world. And the nations tremble when that happens. We have capacity now to destroy most of what lives on this earth with nuclear weapons. But even so, the power of God is set against the power of man here. The nations raging, the kingdoms totter, but he utters his voice and the earth melts. The earth melts. To the ancient person, the earth was like an indomitable force. <laughs> it, was, it was just, it was what is there it's what's present we we can't overcome the earth god just speaks the psalmist says and the earth melts ascribing praise to god and his power what god created with his word he can destroy with his word in fact theologically and eschatologically god has promised to judge the world in righteousness by the one whom he's appointed the one who he raised from the dead the lord jesus christ and it's my conviction that the Son of God, who, who was the means of creating all things, all things were created by Him and for Him. The Son is also the means of the judgment that will come at the end of the age. He will be the means where the earth will melt away in 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Christ will be the means also of making all things new. All evil, all wicked will be destroyed when he returns, but he will also be the means of making all things new. Come, behold the works of the Lord, verse 8 of the psalm, how he has brought desolations on the earth. Now what follows 
as we're beholding the works of the Lord as either blessing or cursing depending upon what side you're on. You often hear this. In fact, we have a hymn, Be Still and Know. Be still, my soul. Is that how it goes? Be still, be still, my soul, be still. But verse 9, he makes war cease to the end of the earth. Oh, that's good news. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. You know, it's no different. Ballistic missiles <laughs> doesn't matter to God. They, they have nothing against, they, they can do nothing against him. The point is, is not to say, uh, the point of this is not to say God be on our side, but rather it is for those to whom God has already shown mercy so that they will be glad and worship God. This is for the righteous. And so he says in verse 10, be still and know that I am God. I do think that this has a double meaning here. For the wicked, be still can be, this is it. Look at you. You have, you have resisted me enough, but no further. But to the righteous, this be still has a different meaning, doesn't it? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, whether in joy or in horror, one day. But to us, that's our everlasting that's our everlasting song, that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. But it is going to be the horror of the wicked when they be still, when they will learn to be still before God and learn their place and fear God with trembling. I will be exalted among the nations, he says. I will be exalted in the earth. God's warfare is not against planet Earth. He's not waging war against his creation. Rather, it is the city of men that he fights. But even that is primarily for the salvation of his people. The nations are a drop in the bucket, Isaiah 40 says. They may roar until they are hoarse and even kill themselves, and we will until Christ returns. But God's but God fights so that his people will have an unending season to rejoice in him, to worship him. And the application, there's a few applications I want to draw and then we're done. What should we expect in regards to these truths being evidenced on our behalf? How do, how do we expect these truths from this psalm uh, to, to be... Uh, evidenced in our lives. First, Christ's life and death should be the pattern for how God is doing this for Christ's church. In other words, when we come to this and we see outside the storms are raging in verses 2 and 3, verse 4 and 5, we're in the city of God. He's among us. We, we have, in a sense, we have to view that as our place is with Christ right now, seated in the heavenly places. Ephesians 2, Colossians 3. We are there now. Those who are trusting him are there now, in a sense, where Christ is seated. But we are in the turmoil, aren't we? The peace is that he has gone. He's died for us. He's risen again. 
He sits at the right hand of the Father. That's where God's family, that's where the city of God is, in a sense. That's where our refuge is, is in the Lord. There. And in a sense, this is where the turmoil is going on, isn't it? But that is no less true than this. That's what our faith, that's what we believe. That's no less true than any opposition we'll face in this world. It's not more true, it's true. And so that's why we have a refuge that cannot be dispersed or dismembered or taken away because Christ is seated there. And so then we should understand that the way that our Christian life looks is how Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 6, 4 through 10. But as servants of God, now this isn't everybody's Christian life, but this is often the case. Here's one of the most faithful Christians of all time. We all know that, right? The Apostle Paul. Here's how he describes his ministry. Think of how many ministers would just run out of the ministry if this happened to them these days. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech. Do you see how things are mixed in here? We don't want the first half of that list, do we? The beatings, hardships, afflictions, calamities, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, those we don't want. We want the purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, the power of God. He's saying this is all ours. With the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Why? Why can all those things be true? Because Christ is seated at the right hand of God. For him and for us. That's why it's true. But you ask, why does God wait? Why do we have to go through these sorts of things? Why, why all the suffering? That's one of the great questions in the world. Why all the suffering in the world? That's not an evil question, I don't think. It, it can be evil. If it's an accusation of evil doing by God. We read in Revelation 6.10, and this is the second answer to how these truths are evidenced. Verse 10 of chapter 6, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, that's the God, of, that's the most high in Psalm 46. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? These are martyrs. These are people who died with the testimony of Christ. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. The answer to 
why God doesn't send Christ already, why do we have to go through these things, is first is that our life is hid with Christ. He's the master. Should we be treated any better, he said? But secondly, it's that regarding the elect of God, God will not shorten a moment of that tribulation that we read in verses 2 and 3. Not a moment of hardship for us until all of his elect are saved. And you say, wow, you mean we got to... We got to go through hardship because he, but aren't you thankful? Aren't you thankful he didn't come back 30 years ago or 40 years ago and 50 years ago? I think salvation is so great that, that any hardship that we, Paul says, it's just a moment. It's a momentary trial. No matter what, it's a moment. And God has been patient with sinners for thousands and thousands of years because he has foreloved his people. Those who would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Sinners, though they were unworthy of him, though we are. Aren't you glad that he doesn't act a moment before To put an end to all the hardship. Because that will end when Christ comes back for his people. And I think that we also ought to live with this reality when we read this. We were made to dwell in the immediate presence of God. We taste that now. We have a taste of it now. The Spirit dwells in us when we come to the table of the Lord. We are in the presence of God. When we gather together, we are in the presence of the saints in heaven, Hebrews chapter 12. We are in, with innumerable hosts, but I believe that we were created to dwell with God. We were redeemed to dwell with God, with Christ as the center of our lives, with him with us. And that will happen when he comes back. But in the meanwhile, we take heed to this psalm that God is supreme over all things, and he is the refuge and strength of his people.